We're going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word. Um, Our sermon series has been in the book of Acts for a few months now, and the last few weeks we've been reading the story of uh, Peter and John's miraculous healing of the lame man and their preaching of the resurrection. And last week they were imprisoned for that preaching, and unfortunately, uh, but they were let go. And so we're going to continue in verse 23, I'll be reading 23 through 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I see a lot of new faces today, so welcome. It's really good to have you here visiting, worshiping Jesus. That's that's cool. I am hoping that you would join me this morning. I'm going to start differently than I normally do. I'd like to start with a prayer. It's a prayer from a woman named Gloria Hutchinson. And I'm going to read it, but I'd like us, if you would, uh, this busy world we live in, and it's it's fast-paced, and I come to this pulpit or round table thing um, tired and exhausted, oftentimes very distracted. So to begin this morning, I would invite you to try to settle, settle your soul and your heart and your mind. I'd like you to close your eyes. Take a deep breath into your lungs. Feel that life come into your lungs. Breathe out. And as you settle your heart and settle your mind and try to, try to step into a different space than the average runaround of the world, hear this prayer as I pray it with you. Brother Jesus, You have reminded me of my need to anchor my soul in a place of prayer, a place where we can come together to worship the Father. Free me from my restless activity, my slavery to the clock, my habit of bobbing along on an open sea when you have called me to be still 
when I consider how you consented to enclosure in Mary's womb, in a narrow manger, in a carpenter's home on the wooden cross, at the bread of Eucharist, my heart is moved to seek enclosure with you. Amen. Those are some poignant images, aren't they? Seeking solace in Jesus or finding a place of peace in Him. I think they're poignant for Central Bible Church. I'd ask you a question. Are we confident as a people? Are we confident and securely enclosed in Jesus with Him before us and behind us, above us, below us, to the left and to the right of us? Are we enclosed in Jesus, living in that still place of peace, of well-being? Or are we bobbing along on an open sea, restless, dissatisfied? Deep down, if you looked back at the last, say, 10 to 15 years of, of Central Bible Church, life here at CB, and, and this is just you, alone, in a place of total honesty, nobody else is listening. Would you look back on our church ministry as one that has been driven primarily by hopeful love or by a restless fear? Have we been adventuring or have we been protecting? Are we trying to boldly lead mission or are we trying to save face and reputation? Which would you say that we have been doing as a collective community? Maybe you, like me, have, have had to say, well, I've only been here for three years or two months or 17 minutes. <laughs> and then you would say, I, I don't have that 10 to 15 year history and I think that's fair, so maybe we could just ask ourselves. Do I live each day with a hopeful love for God and neighbor? Or do I live each day driven by a restlessness, a fear, fear of loss, fear of what might happen if I don't have, or this doesn't, or whatever? Now, even if we haven't been here 10 years, we're here now. We need to think about this thing as a community, like the community that we see forming in Acts, these early chapters of Acts are a community of Christians forming. And I want to wonder what it would be like if we were facing a specific threat. We feel threats of various kinds from different angles all over the place. But now we were going to do some imagination. Imagine that we as a community are facing a very specific threat. Not the bland threat of sort of an ominous bad weather system or the, the mean neighborhood dog. Okay, like, not something like that. I mean a, a genuine, intense threat to your life and, and to our collective life. It's hard to imagine because we live in a place of pretty significant safety. But try to imagine we gathering together facing a threat of life. And what if that threat was specifically based on our commitment to Jesus? We've chosen to follow the real Jesus, 
And that is why the threat is coming. Now, the threat is coming from an enemy, and we know that this enemy is easily a hundred times more powerful than we are. Imagine that we have already seen this enemy efficiently and powerfully destroy countless of innocent lives. It's an unstoppable enemy with limitless power. Here we are. We're facing this enemy. It's because we want to follow Jesus. And then, one Sunday, a friend from our community comes hobbling in, exhausted, dirty, suffering. He's got bloodied rings around his, his ankles and his wrists because he was shackled and locked up in a stone, probably a stone prison cell the night before. And he comes hobbling in through the door, and we're hanging out to gathering to prayer. And he says, man, I just went toe to toe with the enemy yesterday. I barely made it out alive. And then everybody starts collectively gasping. <gasps> they see the blood dripping from his wrists, and he's filthy and exhausted. And we say, oh my gosh, what is going on? Let's gather. We need to pray, right? We would say that. Let's pray. Now tell me. What do you and I pray for in that moment? What is the gut level first thing we pray for? Facing threat of death, here comes the evidence that it's real. The enemy is on the doorstep, and what do we pray for? Deliverance. Do we not? Safety. We say, God, you are our only hope for salvation, please. Please save us. Take this persecutor away from us. Or at least give us safety and security as he launches his attack. God, please remove this suffering we see in our brother who's come through the door and help us to not have to endure that same thing. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you're under the threat of cancer, you ask God what? God, please remove my cancer. Deliver me. I don't want to suffer. If you're under the threat of law, you say, God, please let the judge be lenient. I don't want to suffer the consequence of what I've done. If you're under the threat of some kind of other suffering, you ask God, God, please deliver me from the suffering. I know you want to. We go on and on. I think under threat, we often cry out to God for deliverance. He alone has the power to heal cancer. He alone has the influence over the government systems. He says that in the scriptures. So we turn to him. We say, God, give us some better laws, please. Free us from the pain of this world. That's funny though, isn't it? You listen to McKinsey's reading, and we heard something a little bit different. You realize Peter and his fellow believers are facing a huge threat. But deliverance is not what they ask for. Did you catch that? They're having their church prayer meeting. Peter was locked up the night prior by these rulers, same rulers who judged, condemned, and crucified Jesus. Same guys, same spot. Jesus is bringing the same message, or sorry, Peter is bringing the same message it's even a better message because we're post-resurrection now. And he's faced them. We saw even in the text we have already read that he, would, he had courage through the Holy Spirit. 
But here he is, and he has a cease and desist order in hand. They let him out of prison, and they said, all right, we don't know what to do with you, punk, but we're going to let you go, providing you, you stop associating what you're doing with Jesus, the criminal that we killed. So go ahead and do that. So Peter's walking into the community. He's saying, hey, he let me go. They let me go, but it's under these conditions. I can't speak about Jesus out loud anymore. We might expect old Peter to say to his church crew, all right, men and women, let's gather around here. Ever since that big healing miracle we did over at the temple gate, we have had some heat on us. High priests, the Sadducees, all these religious power brokers, they have gotten super mad at us. So we need to cool it down. Let's lay low for a while. Let's just send the kick it, see what happens. Let's go to prayer. Let's ask for deliverance from this kind of suffering. Just like God delivered his people from an evil Pharaoh, let's ask him to deliver us. You see, let's, let's, that's what we need to do. But that's not the prayer. It's actually just the opposite, isn't it? If you have your Bible open, we're in Acts 4. We're in verse 29 right now. Let's read it together. It's so cool. I mean, you've got to sit in this space. This is a wild, wild prayer meeting to be in. The earliest, earliest moments of church life. Threat of death. They're watching. It's just incredible moment. And here's their prayer, verse 29. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats. And grant your servants to speak your message with great courage. Rather than please deliver us out of danger and into safety, they say, please give us courage to stay on mission in the midst of danger. To stay on mission with you, Jesus, when doing so means it's going to hurt I think this marks the first picture we can see into the way that Jesus' early church responds when people oppose them. When people are simply intolerant toward them or condemning. They don't ask for a government-enforced civil law that makes worship safer and easier. They don't ask for the freedom or the context in which they can proclaim the gospel in a simpler and more efficient way that doesn't cost them as much. Instead, they said, boy, this is going to be rough. We need some power from you, Jesus, because we can't do that on our own. So help us to be bold in this context. That's a good barometer for a handful of us. And <laughs> If you say, yeah, that's, that's kind of me. I need to think about that. I'm with you. Do we more commonly ask God to make ministry easier and more efficient for our otherwise busy schedules? Or do we more commonly ask God to make us braver, stronger, more willing to endure whatever it takes to be with Jesus and to keep his mission in this world moving. The notion that God wants them to be in a safer, more comfortable, Christian-friendly place, a more faith-based culture, it's just not in their head. Why? Why would they not be praying for that, we ask as good Americans? That's what we pray for. 
We want better laws. We want more freedom. We want it to be easier, safer, less costly, cheaper, quicker. I've got other stuff to do. I've got to balance this thing. Why are they not asking for that? Well, we've got to guess a little bit. It's not super explicit, but I think it's something like this. I think their leader, you know, the guy who got this whole ball rolling, their true friend, Jesus of Nazareth, they're looking at him. They're listening to him. They're not just using his name. They're carefully listening to him and paying attention to what happened. I think they can look at it and say, huh, God didn't alleviate Jesus' suffering, really at all. Why would they expect God to alleviate their suffering? They know. This is interesting. You've seen it in Luke in these first couple chapters. These sort of controversial moments, Luke always, always looks at them through the lens of predestination. He always looks at them through the lens of this foreordained plan. It's really interesting. We've seen it already in these chapters. They know that the prophet Isaiah said it was God's will that Jesus would be crushed to death for the well-being of other people. They know from Psalm 118, which we quoted in the passage last week, they know what the psalmist was talking about when he said, when they said, they're looking back at Psalm 118, they said, this stone, Jesus, is the stone that the builders, what? Rejected. Not the stone that they really appreciated and then made comfortable laws for him to do his work with them. <laughs> you know? They said, get out! He turned into the cornerstone, though, they say. They know that people for many, many hundreds of years, even thousands, have been looking to a Messiah that would be crushed. They're putting this together. Luke sets this up in a way where we can't look at what happens to Jesus and, and, and say, imagine God saying, uh-oh, Jesus is suffering. We have a problem Luke wants us to see, this is more of a, you know, like a Houston, we don't have a problem. This is what was supposed to happen. So if they see that God has planned it this way, and they believe God, then they're not also asking God to not have planned it the way he did. They see part of what we have to do by being alive with Jesus is be willing to step like Jesus stepped into the face of great evil and suffering. And their reaction is, give us what it takes to do that. We're not trying to squirm out from under it. They also remembered Jesus who said, people are gonna hate you. People are gonna call you bigots. People are gonna reject you. People are gonna call you uh, perpetrators of hate crime. People are going to get after you something fierce. It's going to not be easy. They actually believed Jesus when they said that, when he said that. Peter's young church was actually listening very carefully to God, and when he tells them really scary things that they do not want to hear, they still trust him. 
And they believe him, and they put two and two together. If this is what God anticipated for Jesus, and if we are in Christ, and Christ has said you will carry a cross, you will be killed with me, you'll be sharing in my death, they say, okay, this is where we're at. It's better than where we were. So they don't ask God to deliver them. They ask God for personal and for community help so that they can, as a tightly bound together people, never stop living on mission for Jesus. Grant your servants courage. Grant us courage, God. Because God affirms their request and grants it, the church comes alive with bravery. The early history of the church is just fascinating. Read some of the stories of the martyrs and the people who were courageously living for God. And they're living in a way that looks a lot to me like all church bravery, all community bravery. We together as a people will stand strong together, brave. Paul says to Timothy, we are not called to a spirit of timidity. We're not called to a spirit of, oh, oh. We're called to a spirit of, we've got this because Jesus is with us. Jesus isn't even afraid of death. What are you afraid of? But notice verse 29 was just the beginning of a sentence, wasn't it? There's another part of the sentence, which is in verse 30. Notice how their prayer continues. First on the front end is the, please give us courage. And then... While you extend your hand to heal and to bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay? Please give us courage while you do miracles. They have essentially said, trying to help these hostile people around us come into contact with the gospel, the real gospel, is not easy and it's painful and we need you to give us some real courage, please. They're acknowledging that it's not easy. They're asking for courage. And now they say, and we know that while you are granting us such courage, you will also be extending your hand to heal and bring about miracles or semions or signs. You'll bring about miracles, signs that come from the power we know Jesus has the power that we saw in him. Give us courage while you do the miracles of Jesus. Notice this. They do not ask God to do miraculous and powerful things. They do not ask him to do that. They say that they know he will do that. Please give us courage while you are doing this. They have a certain confidence in Jesus' power. Do we? They have learned how God works, and they trust He will continue to work as He has. Do we? And notice something else. The prayer here is that God will grant them not just an average general courage to do courageous types of things overall. It is specifically that God would grant them 
let's say us, the courage to speak your word with all boldness. That's where it gets dicey, isn't it? Everybody will be excited if you come in and bless them with new material benefits of some kind. Thank you for the generosity. We, like we want to be generous. We want to be hospitable. Those are some of the big core values that we're forming here as a church community. But we all know that when you get down into the word Jesus, Christian, gospel, the Bible, it starts to take on something else. Grant your servants the courage to speak boldly your word. In short, this prayer is for a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired rhetoric that is compelling. Words, explanations, conversations, persuasive speech. They, the servants, see themselves as responsible for the proclamation, don't they? I think they're asking, give us courage to speak because they believe we're here to speak. <laughs> That's what we're on task for. This is our mission. Give us what we need to do this well. It is our role to speak, to speak clearly, courageously, with spirit-filled rhetoric. Do you see yourself as a daily spokesperson for God? A representative of God and His Word. Do you see yourself as that, or is it just the pastor, or just the evangelist, or just the blogger, or just the cool YouTube video guy or gal? Do you see yourself as an ambassador, as a messenger, one of God's own chosen, dedicated, creative communicators? Or do you see yourself just as somebody who supports people who do that stuff? It's an all-church bravery that we need. They see God as one who spreads out his hand while they are communicating the word that God has entrusted to them to communicate. God, they believe, will be extending his hand miraculously to do signs and wonders. We know Peter already believes the sign and wonder he did with the healing of the lame man. They challenged him. They said, what is this, man? Are you super holy? Are you Harry Potter? Are you, what are you? How do you do this crazy stuff? And he said, that's not me, bro. It is Jesus of Nazareth who's working through me. So they truly see Peter truly sees that it's the power of Jesus doing this miracle. This is happening because of Jesus' power. What do we conclude? Well, they expect that the miracles will be God's way of confirming what the apostles are preaching, that they're not fakes. You've got to put these two things together. I've said they believe themselves to be the spokespeople for God, but they're out preaching a pretty controversial message in which many people they know are going to come to the table, including the highest powers in the land, are coming to the table and saying, you guys are fakes, total imposters. And they say, but God's confirming our message through the miraculous signs we're also able to do. So the miracles are to confirm, to prove true the word that they're speaking. It was a common expectation in, in their day. 
You can see it in other literature from that day. Somebody coming in with a message, they would expect some kind of confirming sign, okay? Some way to show proof. Notice then, miracles in the book of Acts are seen to have an apologetic function. Miracles are, are there to point to the truth of what they're saying, like a sign does. Miracles have a persuasive function. In other words, the miracle of healing the lame man at the temple gate was certainly good for that man. His ankles were twisted up from birth. Forty years, we're told, he had that problem. Was he stoked when he could run and walk and jump? Yeah. Did that benefit him? Absolutely. And yet, I think if you said to Peter, hey, Peter, why did you heal that dude? Peter would not say, because I really wanted to bless him with healing, and then leave it there. Instead, I think he would say, because healing that man with Jesus' power in the name of Jesus suggests that Jesus is the real deal. That everything we are trying to say is not fake. I'm glad that guy can walk and jump, and we definitely did that to bless him, but the higher purpose was to solidify and confirm that our preaching's not a joke, okay? So that's the function of the miracle all throughout the book of Acts. And apparently, that's a pretty good method. <laughs> we were already taught, here's Peter getting totally hosed by the big boys, and he's got 5,000 guys out in the middle of the Gentile court that are coming to Jesus. It was working. Miracles were given to prove that the apostles were not fakers. Have you ever asked God for a miracle? Do we ask it in the way that we see Acts 4.29? Where our focus on loving our neighbor becomes the number one reason we want to see God do miraculous work. Or do we ask it in a different way? Where the number one reason we want to see God do his powerful work in our midst is all about receiving a personal benefit. Is it, God, please heal my cancer so that I can be healthy? Or is it, God, please heal my cancer with a miracle so strong that my neighbor will believe all that I have been showing and telling her is true. Some of us have to even say, am I even showing and telling my neighbors anything about Jesus? If not, that's where we start. Do we ask for miraculous power to benefit our lives or to confirm that what we are preaching and teaching to everybody in our life is true? One is a desire to use God's great power for self-help, self-improvement, a better quality of life for me. The other is a desire to join with God's power and mission to bless others for a better quality of life for them, you see? One is seeking God's power just for self-improvement. The other is joining God's power that exists already on mission to save people in his gospel. 
It's a very different heart. Notice these prayers. The people praying. They don't ask God for a new or unique miracle. They assume he's already working that way. The key word is while. Please give us courage to stay on mission, to speak your true word while you are doing your miracles that confirm what we're saying. That's a beautiful prayer. They have confidence that God is already going to keep helping them in this way, in their day, while they are living with him. And the life with God that they have is all about bringing the love and the truth of God to others. Not just an average love, not just a social sort of bland niceness toward people, but the kind of love and truth that we, that we courageously always associate with Jesus of Nazareth, specifically and clearly. Help us to be the kinds of people who help other people know that specific person, Jesus. It's easy to be nice to people and receive accolades and approval as a result, isn't it? It's simple. I fear that sometimes in our fear, coupled with a desire to stay Christian, we sometimes morph our missions, the things we do, into things like this. They'll garner the approval, but we lose the gospel. This is to speak clearly your word in the world. It is much more difficult to live as an obvious, unashamed Christian who lives life openly as one of Jesus' people in a world that historically despises Jesus and his people. And that's why we need courage and bravery. It's hard to live as an open Christian, unashamed. They needed courage then, and you and me, we both, we all need it now. And I would say Central Bible Church, we need some all-church bravery, something fierce. We're stepping into a new era. We have been for several years. The world is changing quickly. Most of the conversation that I hear is fear conversation. What will happen? What's the, what the money? What are we going to do? The world is changing. There's so much sin. Oh my gosh, the internet. I want us to come back to a place of hopeful love, the kind of trust, the confidence you see. In, and these guys were facing threat that was 100 times more than what we're facing. I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if that's fair. Perhaps it's the same threat, just wearing a new T-shirt. We're facing significant threat. It is a fearful time. And yet we're not called to a spirit of fear and timidity. You kind of can see it, can't you? Our God doesn't die and says, when you're with me, neither do you. What are we afraid of? <laughs> it's amazing, but here I am too. Oftentimes, I look back at my life and I say, oh, I'd say the vast majority of my life has been lived out of fear, fear of failing, fear of not having, fear of suffering. There's a couple of places I think we need fear. Sorry, bravery the opposite of fear. We need bravery to face ourselves and to forgive ourselves. I know this isn't out of the Acts 4 text specifically, but I think this has a lot to do with it. I'm trying to think 
What are the things in our world and in our day that keep us from going on mission? I'm not too worried about Jewish high priests stopping the mission of Central Bible. It's just, it doesn't freak me out. But there's other things that do. And one thing I think that freaks me out is facing my own self. I don't want to look at who I am. I don't want to look at my sin. And I don't want to look at who I've become over the 38 years I've had to live. And so I don't look at it. I look at everybody else's sin. And I look at all of the world's atrocities. And I never come to a place of truly forgiving myself and receiving Jesus' forgiveness. And you know what that makes me? A fake. And then our message is crap. Because we're saying Jesus forgives us. And that he's smarter than us, but I won't forgive myself. And that sin inside of us, because we won't look at it, we won't acknowledge it, we won't bring it out into the light, it governs us. And we fear. We fear condemnation, even though the Bible teaches us we should not and have no reason to. We need courage to face our own selves honestly to confess who we are to one another and to forgive each other and receive the healing of Jesus alone. We are terrified of our own selves. We're terrified sometimes of what we have done to our church. And we don't want to say, I'm part of what has happened. It's always somebody else. We're afraid of who we've become as individuals. If we pray for the courage to face our own selves, to forgive ourselves as Jesus forgives us, evil will continue to dissolve from our midst. And strength and the spirit-empowered message of the gospel will take hold in the strongest way. I believe that in the deep place of my heart. If we don't, if we continue to refuse to face ourselves, to open up who we are, then evil will continue to fester and divide and harm us for years to come. Okay? We need to pray, God, give us bravery to face ourselves and believe what you say when you tell us that we're holy and blameless and with you and that you love us and that you're not here to condemn us, but you're here to raise us up and heal us it takes courage. It's weird. You, 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 you hear that, and it's like, that sounds wonderful. You try to live that out, and it's scary. I don't know why, but I know it is. We need courage there. Second one, I've got two more. We need bravery to face one another. What hinders the mission of Central Bible Church in the east side of Portland and in Portland overall? Think of John, and you've heard me, I hammer this verse probably to the point that you're annoyed, but that's okay. It's part of a pastor's job to annoy the congregation, so that's what I'm doing. John 17, he says, they're going to know, the world's going to know that I'm not fake by how you love one another. Are you one with each other the way that I am one with Father and Spirit, Jesus says. Do we see that oneness as crucial to our mission? It is a scary thing to truly enter into a kind of fellowship with other people. 
All of the Christian niceties that we, that we say, all of the Christianese sort of flowery language, it says to me that we're hiding from one another. We are sometimes afraid to invite one another over to our homes for lunch or for dinner because we're afraid of the messiness or we're afraid of the clutter or I'm not that good of a cook or whatever. Think of what you're actually afraid of there. You're afraid of somebody not liking you or being rejected socially or something like that. They might think that I don't have my life together. <laughs> Does anybody in here want to raise their hand and say, I've got this thing totally nailed down. I'm, I'm rocking it, baby. It's perfect. You know? And yet, oftentimes we enter into community feeling like we have to pretend that. And when we do, we're fake. And the message is powerless because it's of us. It's not of the Spirit. We're afraid to talk with young people. They are feisty and constantly judging me for not having a cell phone. We're afraid to talk to old people. They're feisty and they judge us for having a cell phone. I mean, that's just one little thing. You can, you can flush that out in a million arenas. Why would we be afraid of one another? Do we not all come to this place to worship the same Jesus who loves us? Oh, we should be walking across the room every time we see a new face and say, hey, who are you? What brought you here? When did you start following Jesus? And if the person says, I don't follow Jesus, I had that happen to me last Easter. A woman came up to me last Easter. She said, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe any of this stuff. But you guys have been really wonderful to me, and that message spoke to me. I still know that woman. I'm in a relationship with her, and she's following Jesus today. Amen. That's beautiful. Yeah, so we, we come together as one, and we learn to love one another and not be afraid of one another. Are we truly going to refuse to extend love and friendship and fellowship to Christians because we're afraid that what? We might experience a brief period of awkwardness or discomfort? I think Jesus experienced a lot of discomfort for something really great. And if we're afraid to just talk to each other, we're not on mission for him, are we? We're not on mission. And you know what the worst part of not being on mission with Jesus is? Is that you're not totally alive. Being on mission with Jesus is the epitome of life. I mean, it's where your soul starts to sing. All the, all the claptrap of a dying world doesn't weigh you down so much because you're with the life giver. It's a beautiful thing. We need courage to become real friends. We need courage to be open with ourselves and with others. We need courage so that we can get past casual acquaintances that can easily be broken and into deep spiritual friendships that don't break for all of eternity. That's the call of Jesus. And the last one. We need all church bravery to face the world. This is exactly Acts chapter 4. That's what they're doing, right? This is straight out of the passage. We need all church bravery, a willingness to face the threat of social pain, of rejection, of physical pain, of financial pain, of emotional pain, 
all the same exact pain that Jesus suffered so that the profoundly good news about Jesus and his kingdom and his love for humanity and creation go forth into Montevilla, into Portland, the east side, the west side, and the whole region of the Pacific Northwest and unto the ends of the earth. We need bravery to face the real world that we're in, and it doesn't come from us mustering up bravery. It comes from Jesus. Has not this, this text has suggested that. They're praying to God for bravery. You, my brothers and sisters, we are not weaklings with no gifts or without power. We're just the opposite. You are holy and blameless, spiritual stones being fitted together into a temple, which is the most powerful witness for God in the world, but it's people now. That's what God is fitting us into, strength together to face the world. We want to be called Jesus' church and come hell or high water with the spirit-empowered bravery of Jesus Christ himself, we can and we will walk peacefully, lovingly, with great confidence, courageously, into every single part of our day, every part of our day-to-day world, everywhere we go. As the closing verse 31 says, we will become a people who are all filled with the Holy Spirit, beginning to speak the word of God courageously. That's what happened to this community in Acts chapter 4 after they prayed for courage. God gave it to them, and they started living that way. I was meeting with a very wise Christian woman last week, and I was telling her about many of my own fears. And as the wise elder that she was, she pointed me to the prayer of St. Patrick. We just celebrated that yesterday. It's often called the breastplate of St. Patrick. And the image there is one of protection. These are the words that he thought as he took the gospel to Ireland way back, early 400s, 400 AD. Way back then, his whole sense of courage was not mustered up through his own human willpower. His sense of courage came from his sense of living in the power of the Holy Spirit, being genuinely bound to Jesus in the most profound way. So it's not about, all right, everybody, grab your shoelaces and tighten them up and get courageous. That's not what we're talking about. It's about admitting reality. It's about actually accepting what is real, that Jesus is real, that nobody can take your life away from you. That's insane. It changes everything. That he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. When you feel that fear come up, pray with the ancient church and the current body of Central Bible, asking for courage, while you also remember that Jesus is 100% with you, for you, unto kingdom realities while you remember that Jesus is filling you with his own spirit and power. We are in Jesus, the brave, the resurrected one. Even death has no power 
over us. I want to think these words of St. Patrick right now. I put them in your bulletin. Look at your bulletin. I'll read them. It's a beautiful thought. It brought me to tears because, as I said, I came to this woman. Her name was Ruth. And I said, I've been experiencing a tremendous amount of fear lately. She says, you ever hear the prayer of St. Patrick? They call it the breastplate. Let's read this together. We read it, and I had tears coming from my face because I thought, yeah, I haven't been, th- I've been thinking it's just me out in the world on my own trying to do the good, do- the good work. But look at what, look at these words. They're so beautiful. Christ to protect me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Let's pray together now and ask God for some raw Christian courage. Father, where we sit today does not strike me as particularly unique. I'm reminded of all the times that you approach human beings and your first words are, don't be afraid. (laughs) We have a propensity to being afraid. I think it started the day we left the garden. The world is a gauntlet, and every day it threatens to take from us what is valuable and what matters. But the day you started proclaiming the entrance of your kingdom was the day that that lie started to fade. And I pray that you would help this congregation see with clarity the power of your spirit, the way that for thousands of years you have been redeeming and reconciling this world, renewing it and bringing people into true life that you truly do stand above all governments, all nations, all powers, and that you invite us into your life, that you draw us into unbreakable fellowship with you. God, help us to own that in the deep place of our soul so that fear can be driven from there by a perfected love for you. We are yours. You are, Jesus, our firstborn brother, but you are our king as well. And we bow to you. We ask you wholeheartedly for raw Christian courage and all church bravery so that we will not let go of your mission. And we will stay in life with you. We love you. We trust you. We are yours. Amen.